Well, <coughs> yes, I'm pleased we sang Amazing Grace before I got up here because um, it's Amazing Grace that I'm here at all. So um, uh, I just want to um, continue on this series which we've been enjoying uh, looking into the book of Galatians. Um, so far we've heard from Elizabeth, um, Paul, Jordan and last week from Mikey. Um, and throughout the book of Galatians, we find that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is searching out creation and history. Uh, he's searching out people and events, geographical features even, uh, features like mountains and other places. And he uses them as allegories, um, pictures if you like, um, to try and help us understand something to grasp and learn something and that then we might put it into practice. Why does he do this? Well, I believe it's to highlight and correct error. Um, the other speakers have already talked about that. Um, and he was wanting to help the Galatians and us, as we apply it to us, either to get back on track, back on the highway of holiness and truth, onto the narrow way that Jesus talked about instead of the broad way, the road of faith, or to be on guard so that we don't stray off that right path. Um, just an example of um, slightly side issue here of just how God does that. Um, uh, recently I was watching a YouTube on um, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which some of you will know, I'm sure Barry does, because he's probably been there. Have you, Barry? Um, it's it, Shechem's at the base of these two mountains, and on the right is Ebal, and on the right is Gerizim. And when the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan, um, they came to Shechem, and in obedience to what Moses had said to Joshua, they, they declared the blessings and cursings. And... The cursings were done by six tribes on Mount Ebal and the cursings were done by six tribes on Mount Gerizim. And the amazing thing that I saw on this YouTube, I won't go into too much of it other than um, it would be worth looking it up because they're sure now they've found the altar of Joshua on Mount Ebal. They couldn't find it for years but they've actually found it. But what struck me was how desolate Ebal was. You know, there's no trees on it. It's just rocks and barren and it's just a bit of shrub. Gerizim, on the other hand, has got a spring. There's people live on it. It's quite lush. And the contrast between even today, in our age, the, the cursings and the blessings are reflected in the mountains. Um, I just find that incredible. Anyway, getting on to what I was wanting to get to today. Um, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? The Prince of Peace saying that he actually didn't come to bring peace. This is one of those scriptures where you can, if you take it out of context, um, you could get off track. But what he was referring to is... He has come with a sword. You remember in Revelation it says, out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. 
And uh, in, <coughs> sorry, in Ephesians 6 verse 17, it talks about taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And in Hebrews 4 verse 12, it says this. I'll just read it out to you, if I can find it. says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is a sharp two-edged sword that can dis separate between soul and spirit even. Not much else can do that, can it? <coughs> and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Isn't that amazing? But I thought I'd bring this along today. Now that's a sword. Now look, before you get too panicky and those watching online call the police, this is not a sharp two-edged sword. It's actually classed as a toy because it's not sharpened. But I've got this thanks to my grandson's Zaya. I actually had bought a plastic one from Spotlight and thought that looks pretty ordinary, doesn't really do the job. And then uh, my son reminded me that Zaya had this. And I thought, wow, so we swapped. <laughs> and Zaya, if you're watching, uh, I don't know whether you'll get it back actually, it's, this is pretty awesome. But I wanted it to demonstrate a sharp two-edged sword. And imagine that this is sharp and it's not. So Paul in Galatians takes up his sword and he applies it exquisitely and expertly to divide some things. Now through Galatians, we've been doing some studies in Galatians as you know, can you throw a couple of things at me that you think Paul might have applied the sword to? Flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit. Yeah, thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Where else? Think of anything, Jordan? Yeah. Faith and works. Yep. Anything else? Yep. Yes. You've been reading my sermon. Um, many things. I mean, even from what we just heard of the reading that um, was read out of Galatians 4. Um, legalism and grace, bondage and freedom, uh, the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem, Hagar, the bondwoman, and Sarah, the free woman, the old covenant and the new covenant. You see, um, there's, I think I wrote a few more down. Um, Mount Sinai and even Mount Zion comparing mountains. Um, the old man and the new man, walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh. Another gospel from the true gospel. So, put that down for a sec. Why does Paul go to such lengths and trouble? Well, I believe it's because he's wanting to establish or re-establish the absolute and unchanging bedrock of every Christian's life, which is the finished and complete work of Jesus on the cross, 
and the total sufficiency of faith in that finished work on the cross is the only basis for our salvation, our sanctification and indeed our future glorification. It is not and never can be faith plus anything. Paul is, in Galatians is troubled and he's concerned that the Galatians have fallen from grace. Now what that means as far as their salvation is a, another line for another day. Um, it could be debated what that means. But he was sufficiently concerned, or very concerned, um, that they'd fall into, into this trap of believing it's faith and something else. Some ritual like circumcision, observing days, keeping months, keeping years, not eating something, eating another thing. Maybe their errors are fairly obvious to us as we read Galatians, but what about us today? How can we apply that to us? Can't we be also prone to subtly allowing wrong thinking to lead us back into legalism, thinking that our Christian actions of whatever, preaching, praying, serving, giving, coming to church on Sundays, subtly they, uh, can they creep in and, and we think they're actually putting us in a, in a good position with God. No, it's faith and faith only. Paul was so concerned that he says in verse 19 that we read out, he's labouring in birth again for them. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Phrase that he's, he's so concerned that he has to labour in birth again for them. In fact, the whole chapter has a lot of um, human relationship terms that it, that it mentions like birth, um, being born, adopted, motherhood, children and sonship. And this morning I'd like to look at two of those factors where Paul takes up that sword and he separates, and he separates between children and sons, slaves and sons, bond servants and sons. So that's one topic. And the second one is between the old covenant and the new covenant. He does this, I believe, because he wants to emphasise our new relationship with God that comes about only by a new birth, a new creation. So let's open up to one, well, in Galatians to probably just the end of chapter 3, if we can again. And it says, if you are Christ, in verse 29 then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then he goes on to talk about how uh, a child who's an heir doesn't differ any, any way from uh, a slave or a bondservant until they come to maturity. Now that's true in a lot of, not so much in ours, but in a lot of cultures and a lot of religions, um, other racial uh, background people, 
when a child, especially the eldest son, but when, when a child gets to 14 to 18 or somewhere around there, quite often a ceremony is um, had and they're recognised and they become a full heir of their father. They're recognised as a mature adult. And so what he's emphasising here is that's how we were when we were in bondage. We were heirs, potentially, but we weren't fulfilling our heirship, if you like. We hadn't yet become full sons. And so he's, this is what happens spiritually when we are born again. That's what Paul's getting at. And that's why he's emphasising on labouring in birth again for these people, because something's gone wrong. At new birth, his spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are, chi we are children of God. That's why it says uh, in verse, where is it? Verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. There's a, uh, there should be a, a, a spirit within us that cries out, Father. Because he's witnessing that we are children of God. This whole aspect of sonship, uh, you may or may not agree with this, but I'm, this is what I believe. This whole aspect of sonship was an unknown thing in the dispensation of the Old Covenant. So before Pentecost, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Isaiah, Solomon, David, Moses... John the Baptist, even the disciples, could not know what you and I can know. Just think about that. They, they couldn't know sonship like we could. They couldn't know a relationship with God, despite their incredible things they did at times. Yes, they could know fillings of the Spirit. Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit, wasn't she? Zechariah was filled with the Spirit. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit. But they couldn't be born of the Spirit in that dispensation. Because in Acts 1 verse 4 it says, Jesus told the disciples to wait for the promise of the Father. <laughs> what was he referring to when he said, wait for the promise of the Father? Well, it, it, he told them already in John 14, it says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And further up in the verse it says, because, if neither, because you neither see him nor know him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Talking about the Holy Spirit that was coming, the comforter. So this is what Jesus was referring to, the promise of the father is when the Father and the Son were going to come and indwell you and me and everyone who meets the conditions and they would become sons, they would become a new creation in Christ, a whole new creation. Jesus even said to, referring of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11, there's none greater born to women than John the Baptist, none. But he that's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why was that? Because he who is least in the kingdom of God is born of God. 
He's born from above. He's born of the Spirit. He's a son of God. John the Baptist couldn't know that. Isn't that amazing? I find that incredible. And what a privilege we're living in this dispensation. It really is. Are we making the most of it? <laughs> we, we really should look at these Old Testament saints and think, wow. They, they long to know what we can know. What's the end, what's the end desire of God in, in us being born of God? Yes, it's to save us. But what's it say in verse 19? If you look back in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he says this, My little children, for whom I labour in birth again until Christ is formed in you. There it is. He's labouring. What's the end result? He wants Christ to be formed in you and me. The word formed is morpho. Um, I guess that's where we get our metamorphosis from, that a butterfly goes through. But morpho has the connotation of a, of a deep inward change of character, not just an outward change of actions. So what he's wanting us to do is, is uh, or what, what he's wanting us to know is that it's not just what we do that matters, it's who we are. He wants us to be changed into sons. You know, in, in, on the day of Pentecost, it says, you shall, or Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me. You shall be witnesses. Not just you shall do a lot of witnessing, but you shall, you, who you are will be, be a witness by your character because Christ is forming in you. The other thing, the other reason is back in verse 9. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again back to these other things? We can gloss over that, but that's really vital. God wants us to know him. Seems an obvious thing, but he does. He wants us to know him, what he's really like. And he wants us to be known by him. In Matthew 7 it says... Jesus was warning about people saying, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we mighty miracles in Jesus' name? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. So that was what he was getting at here. He wants to know us and he wants us to know him as sons, as sons in the kingdom of God. What a wonderful thing. Okay, moving on quickly into the second part of that, which is the two covenants. The old covenant and the new covenant, which he, he moves on to in verses 21 to the end of the chapter. And he uses analogies again, allegories there of, of Hagar and Sinai, and he uses one there of an old Jerusalem and a new Jerusalem. Basically, he's wanting to, to really put the sword into their thinking of what was Old Covenant and New Covenant. He wants to part it so that they really grasp there was a huge difference between how that was and how this is. The old was basically a whole heap of blessings and cursings and laws and rituals 
continual sacrifices, that in some way they could get right in their own strength and please God through that. And we know that that's impossible and no, no one ever did it. The new is being led by the Spirit. It's not a whole heap of rights and wrongs, it's being led by the Spirit. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Can we put that up? says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I, I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach, teach his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You say, well, hang on, that's a new covenant with the house of Israel. That doesn't apply to us, does it? Well, Paul makes it abundantly clear back in Galatians 4 that in fact, if we are of faith, we are heirs of Abraham. If we are really of faith, we are the true heavenly Jerusalem. We are actually the true Jews, if you like, spiritually speaking. So yes, it does. This is the very essence of the new covenant, that he writes his, heart, his laws in our hearts. And it's a brand new thing that he wants us to really grasp. We have a new father, but we also have a new mother. Did you see that in there? Who's your mother? Spiritually. Yeah, the heavenly Jerusalem, or if you like, the new covenant, is your mother, spiritually speaking. So what we see here uh, is that we are now one new creation in Christ. That's what he's, he's saying. Verse 28 of chapter 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And pinching someone's thunder from chapter 6, at the end it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. I believe as Christians, as much as we can, we should reflect this in both how we act in our churches, but also as much as possible how we act and relate in the world. And we shouldn't be divided in making decisions based on div divisions of race, education, social standing, wealth, or even the colour of our skin. I believe the current voice referendum unfortunately does this. That's my opinion. And hopefully we all take that into account in making our decision when we have to. Absolutely, 
Absolutely, we need to give compassion and support to anyone who is in need. Where there is hunger and poverty, lack of education, homelessness, abuse, health lacks, vulnerability, Christians should and generally are on the forefront line of trying to meet those needs. But our response should be in response to the need and shouldn't be dependent on race, social standing or the colour of someone's skin. God isn't partial. But more importantly, every person individually was created by God and is equally valuable to him. He died for everyone individually. I had a, a negative example of this years ago in the early 90s when I went to Fiji with a brother who was going to move over there as a missionary. And we were touring around a number of different churches in Fiji and the Assemblies of God, um, I don't know if they still are, but they were very quite big over in Fiji back then. And I was really surprised and shocked to find that there are Indian-only AOG churches and Fijian-only AOG churches. And that troubled me because I thought, if the gospel's not breaking down those barriers, what will? How, how can that be? You know, we, we, it shouldn't be based on that, on that sort of basis. Um, we are one in Christ. We are one. He's broken down all those walls and petitions and things that separated us. Just as an aside and the amazing um, uh, activity of missionaries in Fiji, I read years ago that um, after 50 years of the Methodists going to Fiji, out of 110,000 people total in Fiji, 105,000 were, were Christians. Isn't that incredible? From cannibalism to that in 50 years. I looked around Hope a few weeks ago and I thought, oh, this is incredible. I just loved it. I looked around, we were nearly full, and I thought there's, there's oldies and there's youngies and there's people from all different races and backgrounds and countries and, and, and it was just, it was encouraging to me to see what a diverse lot we really are. That's, that's how it should be, I believe. That's how God's made it to be. And, th and that's, that's great, it's a good expression. Let me finish with a good news story. I don't know how many of you here have heard of Memory Mountain. Memory Mountain is basically in the heart of Australia. It's about 230 kilometres west of Alice Springs. And after years and years, it actually, um, the local Aborigines um, instigated this uh, in 2009. But it's taken until this year, at Easter this year, a 20 metre high cross, steel cross, it's huge and it's lit and it's, a, it's been erected on the top of, Mount, um, of Memory Mountain and it's called the Forgiveness Cross. And it was commemorated at Easter in 2023. 
These local Aborigines have been Christians for years. About 100 years ago, three other Christians, Aborigines, went west and won the locals to Christ. And they believe that this is the answer to healing, to, to reconciliation and forgiveness. Not this cross that they've erected, but what it represents. There are so many Aborigines that don't want to go back to worshipping rainbow gods and dream times and other spirits. They've been set free from it. They want us to be one nation of Australians not divided by race or anything else. And I really wholeheartedly agree with that. We all have to make an individual choice, but by far, far, far the most important choice and really the answer to all of everyone's problems is to choose, will I or won't I come to Christ and be born again? Will I or won't I have a cross at the heart of my life, just like Australia physically now has? Isn't that incredible? At the heart of Australia, there's a dirty great big 20 metre high steel cross that you can see for... 100 kilometres around. It's just amazing. What a symbolic thing that is. But it is symbolic. We need to see it outworked. So I'd like to um, just encourage us to think again of the incredible gift that God's given us in allowing us to be his sons. No longer slaves no longer bond servants, no longer children, but sons. No longer under an old covenant of works and doings and trying to keep rituals. Set free to walk in the spirit under a new covenant where he's written his laws in our hearts and our minds. That's incredible. And uh, so I just leave that with you to think about.